Okay, hi everybody. Um, I hope you can all see and hear me. My name's Marianne Lampertang. I'm the General Manager of Stone & Chalk in Sydney and I'm really, really excited um, to welcome you all to attend this special Stone & Chalk and PropTech Association of Australia webinar. This is the first one that we're doing since our launch in February. So welcome to everybody. Okay, so just for people who don't know about Stone & Chalk, so we were founded in FinTech in 2015, which is um, five years ago, and uh, our goal at the time was to help startups commercialise and grow in FinTech. Since then, our goal is still the same, but we've expanded beyond FinTech, and uh, we have um, hubs in Sydney, Adelaide, and um in Melbourne with about 200 startups. And we've developed a particular focus on PropTech, which is why we're here today. And before I hand over to Kylie, who's the CEO of the PropTech Association, who's going to moderate today, I just wanted to let you know about some housekeeping. So down the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A function. Um, we've received a lot of questions, which we've shared with the panelists while you went through the registration process. So hopefully they'll answer most of the questions. But if there are some particular questions that you'd like towards the end, please pop them through and we'll do our best to answer them. Thank you very much and over to you, Kylie. Thanks so much, um, Marianne. How are you? Uh, and welcome, everybody. So what will the property and prop tech market look like in the second half of 2020? Welcome everyone to the PropTech Association of Australia's first PropTech panel when we're, where we're going to discuss the post-COVID recovery and what the property and PropTech market will look like in the second half of 2020. So as uh, Marianne said, I'm, my name's Kylie Davis. I'm the founder of the PropTech Association and it's been fabulous to see so many people register for our first event. Uh, and I would especially like to thank um, Stone and Chalk who have made it possible. Now, when we launched the association back in late February, we could never have imagined that the next three months and what they would be like. We've all been through isolation, lockdown, and the complete end-to-end -end person inspections and auctions, which sent the real estate world spinning. But as I say, necessity is the mother of invention. And in this case, necessity has been the mother of adoption, as the industry turned to prop tech and technology solutions to get it through. And we saw unprecedented adoption of virtual tours, video, negotiation and digital marketing platforms and online auctions, just to name a few tech solutions, while CRM businesses reported record attendances at webinars and training sessions. So what's going to happen next, both in the market and in terms of adoption rates? Are digitally enabled agents the new normal or has this been a big bungee stretch that is going to snap back soon? So I wanted to introduce our expert panel. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Our first panellist discussing how the prop tech market has performed during COVID-19 is Eliza Owen. Eliza is the Head of Australian Research at CoreLogic. She holds a first-class honours degree in economics from the University of Sydney and is a regular economic commentator on residential property. Our next panellist is a bit of a bench change from Macquarie. Um, I'd like to welcome Dan Evans in the place of Dominic Thompson, who uh, has happily welcomed a new baby into their family. Um, Dan is... National Head of Property Services at Macquarie. Thanks so much, Dan. And uh, lastly, we have Chris Rolls from PyLab. Chris is an entrepreneur, investor and adventurer and the Managing Director and Founder of PyLab Venture Partners, Australia's first VC specialising in residential real estate technologies. So welcome, everyone, to our first PropTech panel. Thanks, Kylie. Thanks, Kylie. So, Eliza, let's kick off with you. I know you've got some slides to show us as well. How has COVID-19 and the lockdown affected property market performance? 
Yeah, so overall, I think property markets were generally in an upswing in the lead up to COVID-19. Now we've seen this kind of mild fall in prices. Transaction activity has been impacted with lower sales and listings volumes. uh, And there have been rental markets impacted as well, but the rental market impact is more localized. Um, So our data is showing that there is that mild decline in prices um, and transaction activity has been more affected. So was it as bad as everyone feared? Yeah, so um, short answer, no, I think. Um, Property prices, as I mentioned, had quite a mild downturn. Where we did expect a uh, more severe downturn and where we did see that was in transaction volumes. So that's why I wanted to show some visuals today. Are you able to see that, Kylie? I can. Can you guys see that? Um, So I wanted to show how transaction volumes have been impacted by the pandemic. Um, Basically, we saw about a 33% decline in sales volumes over April compared with March. Um, What's interesting is that we did see a bounce back around May. So typically what we'd see across Australia is about 38,000 sales a month. April, this drops down to um, about 25,000 and then it sort of picks back up um, over May. And One of the most important indicators that's been telling for us in the transaction space about why this has happened is looking at consumer confidence. So, um, this chart here shows a back series of the Consumer Confidence Index produced by Westpac and the Melbourne Institute alongside CoreLogic monthly sales volumes. And you can see that these two numbers are pretty strongly correlated. Um, So, what happened to consumer confidence is that it had this record 17% decline over April. And that bounced back 16.4% over May and had a further increase over June. And you can see that that sort of followed in sales volumes. So that increase in consumer sentiment is really important because the foundation of the questions around the consumer sentiment index are questions like, how do you feel about your current income prospects? How do you feel about your future earnings potential? And when that increases when people feel better about that stuff. They feel more confident in making high-cost, high-commitment decisions like property. Um, Consumer sentiments bounce back off the fact that over April and May, we started to really get ahead of the virus curve in Australia. The government has started lifting restrictions around social distancing, gatherings, and business operations. And so that's led to more people being confident about making a property purchase decision. Um, yeah, Kylie, sorry, did you? You go, you keep going. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> um, and the other component of transaction activity that's really been affected in the current market is listings activity. So listings volumes are down a fair bit from where they were this time last year. And that's sort of a good sign in a way because it suggests that not a lot of people are selling right now because not a lot of people have to sell. And I think that's really been helped by things like um, mortgages, um, banks offering a holiday on mortgage repayments. So we can see in listings volumes, they're about 24% down from where they were this time last year. Um, They have come up about 30% off of a recent low. 
So just to clarify, this graph is looking at the new listings that we count being advertised online in the property market uh, for sale. And we can see that more vendors have started testing the market coming out of April, which appeared to be this kind of trough in transaction activity. Over May, they've become a little more confident. And what's so interesting is that total listings, so the total volume of stock, not just the new stuff that's coming online, has actually been falling. And the reason we're seeing a rise in new listings and a fall in total listings is because as more vendors have tested the market, buyers have met that higher level of volume. Um, the, the number of sales we estimate has more than compensated for the new listings that have come onto the market over the past month. And so, um, that means that the stock levels are remaining pretty tight and that's keeping some stability in prices. And then, as I mentioned, um, prices have uh, had a relatively small decline. And the way we've been tracking that is a kind of high frequency level is to look at the rolling 28-day change in the daily hedonic index from CoreLogic. So our daily index is basically taking the entire value of the property market at, at different levels and looking at how that changes over time. And in the past month, we can see that the combined capital cities markets have seen price declines, but only by about half percent, uh, half a percent in the past month. Uh, it's been more severe across Melbourne, where we've seen about a, a one percentage point decline in property values over the past month, uh, and a one point five percent decline over the past two months. Um, but overall. The impact has been pretty mild, and I think that comes back to a lack of distressed sales uh, and a lack of an influx of stock coming onto the market because of uh, mortgage holiday policies. Uh, it comes back to consumer confidence enjoying a, a recovery as we get ahead of the virus curve, and I think it also reflects some of the stimulus that's been delivered in maintaining employment relationships, and it's helping us to kind of uh, come out of this recovery a bit better than than we expected. So that's a great point, Eliza. Um, I guess what you're telling us is that the ComBank's predictions that property prices could fall as high as thirty percent that doesn't look like it's on the cards. And and winter's always traditionally a time when demand when buyer de well, when, you know when the number of properties on the market is traditionally lower anyway. How do you think that's going to play into but clearly there's a lot of buyers out there. How do you think that's going to play into what happens next? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that uh, you can kind of see in the listing starter that new listings are already following that seasonal kind of decline. So I think we will see a bit of a drop in listings over winter and then that will follow a, a recovery for the spring period. Of course, the main headwind for uh, springtime this year is that we might start to see an end to holiday um, uh, holidays on mortgage repayments. So that could see a, a bit of an uplift in stock and further downward pressure on property prices. Yeah. And we are now officially in a recession. We've had two quarters of negative growth. So, you know, by definition, what are the, what are the economic predictors telling us about what's going to happen next? What shape will the recovery be? And if there's a second wave of COVID, how do you think that's going to play out? Mm. Well, I think one of the fascinating things about the nature of this downturn is that it is kind of self-engineered to try and look at everything that's coming in. But I think one of the most important indicators is 
the government kind of stringency on lockdown. Um, PS put together some really cool uh, data from Oxford University and the OECD, which compares an index of stringency um, where zero is no restrictions and 70 is much more strict, and they compared it to GDP. Now, over the March quarter, we didn't have much stringency until um, March 25th was when our sort of lockdown began. Um, over the June quarter, the average level of the Australian government lockdowns and, and the stringency index uh, was closer to about 67. And based on this analysis, that suggests we are going to see that really big contraction in GDP growth over June. But ultimately, if we look at that stringency index for Australia, which is based on things like school closures, travel, um, business operations, gatherings, it's easing. And so I think that's going to help a gradual recovery um, in the economy. I think that it will be sort of a slow and steady recovery uh, given there is no second outbreak of the coronavirus because that would obviously lead to the implementation of strict social distancing again. And I think that some sectors will recover more quickly than others. Uh, we're seeing industrial production in China has pretty much recovered at this point, which speaks well for markets which are tied to things like iron ore exports and that sort of thing. But until we get things like international travel, then your tourism markets, your short, shorter-term accommodation markets, those are really going to um, see quite subdued performance uh, in, in the next six months or so. Okay, fantastic. So, so moving on, we might. Um, thanks for giving us such an amazing overview on on what's now what's happening. Um, Dan, we can see from Eliza's data that um, that the mortgage holiday is is a is a big player in the market, that there are buyers out there who want to buy, but it's really around confidence and jobs. Um, and so the so the real estate industry in residential are going to be looking at, I guess, a protracted period of lower transactions. Before COVID hit, Macquarie did the pulse check report. What did that tell us about agents' behaviour and, and what can we learn from it? Yeah, thanks, Kylie. It was interesting timing to do the pulse check report because there were signs of um, renewed enthusiasm in the market when we actually took the data in the survey and then COVID hit not long after. Um, so it's interesting to see, even with that being the case, that the survey was done really pre the COVID. A lot of the same themes were evident before and have just been magnified by the COVID period. And the Pulse check, the Macquarie Pulse check, um, for those who haven't seen it before, we've been benchmarking in the real estate industry since 2007. So we've now got 12, 13 years worth of data through these surveys to see these trends uh, amplified across a long period of time. And there's really three things that uh, I think are, are evident in the real estate market. And uh, they come down to the falling commission rates, which have been ever present in our surveys for the last, at least the last four or five years, both sales commission and property management fees as a percentage have been dropping. Uh, and that has been putting margin pressure onto all the businesses. What we're also seeing has been increased volatility in those revenue streams. So um, we talk a lot about the listing volumes and where they've dropped from, from last year, but last year was already a seasonal low 
in um, in transaction volumes in the industry. So we're just seeing this, this volatility, the seasonal um, intra-year volatility as well as year-on-year and really impacting businesses and, and confidence within businesses. And then the third trend uh, is really around consolidation. So to combat those two things, to combat the declining commission and the increased volatility, people are seeking more scale. They're trying to seek more scale in property management and more scale in their businesses more generally. And uh, there are more willing sellers to help people consolidate the industry too. Yeah, so so last year was a strange year, wasn't it? Because we had the election and um, so transactions were down What in the build-up to the election. And so year on year for us to say that transactions are not so bad against last year, last year was pretty bad compared to... So there's been this the year before, so we're seeing this constant sort of ratcheting down of transaction levels. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah so, absolutely. So to summarise the findings of, the, of Pulse Check, the broad trend is that agents are earning less commission on fewer sales, and as a res- but as a result, they're going to need to service more clients to remain profitable, and they need to have a better understanding of their businesses holistically, I guess, um, because it's not just about sales commissions and it's not just about property management commissions. All of those things are under fire. Yeah, and, and to a degree, all of those themes were evident in the Pulse Check um, pre-COVID, but COVID really just uh, magnified and amplified all of those themes. Um, and, and I always think the market is is falling into a number of different segments. It's not true to say that businesses are responding in, in a unified way to the challenges of COVID, and just as they weren't responding in a unified way pre-COVID. And so there's a segment now of the, the industry we think that uh, is finding the current environment incredibly difficult. It was becoming more challenging before. There was increased competition, increased margin pressure, um, and increased reliance on, on staff and, and management and leadership that was causing more, more headaches in running the business. And, and that segment has just found the current time then even even harder to, to deal with um, sort of managing all the, the tenancy rent reviews and the, the leasing changes and the falling in transaction volumes. Um, and that that portion of the market, I think, are the ones who are um, sort of wanting to be consolidated for, for want of a better description. The, the industry is um, is becoming quite challenging for them. And then there's a group of agencies who have always been very progressive. They've been at the cutting edge of the, um, the implementation of new technology, the vision for, for where the business is heading. And, and I think they've, um, a lot of them have, have almost seized this opportunity to really take their business to, a, to another level again. And then there's this big group of people in the middle and um, they've often known that they need to make a change. They know that they've needed to implement changes. And COVID has, has given a lot of them the catalyst to start making those changes. And I think it'll be interesting to see from here on whether they keep their foot on the accelerator of change, uh, whether they they pursue all those um, all those initiatives as the lockdown starts to ease and maybe some of the pressure requiring change starts to ease. How many of them will continue with that and join that progressive group of agencies that, that's at the cutting edge of the industry? Yeah, we are really at that inflection point, aren't we, where we're seeing um, the three group, you know, that that innovator set kind of really start to separate from the pack and 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 lead lead the way. But at the at the bottom end, that uh, the 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 people who are least likely to adopt a technology or the or the changing market conditions to start to really start to drop away. And the inflection point is really how how this middle group behave, whether they try and move forward to to keep up with the innovators or whether they just keep wishing that the market would go back to normal and and you know we'll we'll all be okay. What what did you find in the pulse check that 
top those top performers are doing and 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 their relationship with technology yeah so interestingly when you look at the, the data that the pulse check provided um, the top performing agencies weren't necessarily using more technology than other agencies uh, but they were using it much more consistently and they were executing on changing their systems to adapt that technology much better. So there was a real productivity benefit from the systems they had in place. They weren't necessarily just relying on the, the addition of technology. So a lot of it for me comes down to that mindset and I sort of describe those three segments and, and that progressive group of, of innovators. Uh, I, th- I think for that middle core of the market, Uh, most of it is that commitment to change, the commitment to using technology efficiently, the commitment to trying to drive higher profit margin and try and um, really sort of combat some of these trends we're seeing with the increased volatility through more technology. Um, So if they can make that commitment to to drive the change through, if they can have those difficult conversations with the staff who will feel threatened by the new technology, uh, if they can see the end vision of where they want their business to get to, I think... um, that's really the, the most significant difference between an agency that successfully implements technology and successfully changes the business model and those that get, that get stuck spinning their wheels. If you're a startup, a scale-up, or an established supplier of technology to real estate, join PropTech Association Australia. The PropTech Association Australia is a new national not-for-profit member association to grow the emerging PropTech industry. We champion real estate and property technology and work to grow the marketplace by helping the property and building industry feel more confident about adopting and investing in innovation. We're building a community of bold thinking innovators who share their knowledge and share best practice, quality solutions and consistent approaches. So come and join us. Membership is free till the end of 2020. Go to proptechassociation.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. Yeah, and so we're really seeing this change that where technology is not necessarily about the next shiny button. It's actually about, it's a leadership question inside businesses and looking at, well, what kind of business do I want to have as an agent? What kind of service do I want to offer? And then what technology is going to really help me um, help me achieve that goal and, and get costs out of my business and make my business more efficient? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that it's that commitment to continuous improvement and making the decision that they will implement the changes and and regularly review to make sure that it's as efficient as possible rather than thinking that technology by itself will solve a fundamental issue within the business. So it's it's an execution issue now more than an innovation issue. Yeah, absolutely. He who who executes um, best wins. Well, there, there is a lot of innovation in the market already. I mean, there are lots of um, different pieces of technology and different platforms that companies can use to improve their business. And uh, I think you're right. Without a clear vision of where the business needs to get to, it's impossible to select which of those technologies you employ. And then it becomes impossible to execute on any particular plan. And, and so that getting the mindset right to begin with and then driving through that that execution of the technology say there are lots of excellent prop tech companies developing lots of solutions Uh, so there's no shortage of the innovation it's it's the execution that that most agencies struggle with fantastic so so chris we've heard um we've heard about how the markets perform from eliza and we've heard about the imperative for agents to adopt and execute on tech um, from dan 
how did COVID affect the um, prop tech innovators and, and what are you seeing in the space around adoption? How, is, how are the technology businesses going to come through this? So, look, um, in terms, Kylie, of, of the prop tech industry, I think um, it's sort of hard to say that COVID has affected, you know, everyone in the prop tech industry in the same way. Different businesses have been affected in different ways. Um, you know, there are there are some uh, businesses, you know, some in, in our own portfolio that have had, you know, record months of sales. Uh, you know, one of those businesses, a, a company called Air that uh, provides a a digital assistant for the real estate industry, uh, a small Brisbane-based uh, startup, uh, and, and they've done very, very well um, in sort of April, May, um, particularly you know, um, you know, particularly in May, a sort of record level of sales. And I think that's probably a little bit around you know business owners trying to drive efficiency in their business because they were, they were sort of worried about uh, some of the implications of coronavirus and have reduced their headcount, which has resulted in them needing to you know adopt efficiencies. Uh, and then there are other businesses um, that 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 haven't um, you know uh, you know done as well. I think one of the the initial um, I guess almost like the the initial panic stations that everyone took you know, sort of halfway through March there was I need to cut some staff and I need to cut some costs. Um, and you know I know many people in the in the real estate industry literally went through and 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 went through a process of all well, what's what's you know what's absolutely necessary and what's not. And as part of that, um, one of the things that tends to happen in, in all businesses, not just in the real estate industry, is that subscriptions to software products that seem like a good idea at the time uh, start to mount and then there's a, an exercise of cost cutting and all of a sudden they start to get switched off. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's something that we've seen in the industry um, across, you know, lots and lots of different businesses where subscription levels have all of a sudden, you know, dropped down or a lot of calls around, you um, you know, uh, how do I, you know, I want to turn this off, I want to stop subscribing. Uh, and those that those in the prop tech industry that responded positively uh, and did, you know, did things like, you know, uh, reductions in, in fees in order to get people through this with a view of, um, you know, if, if, if you can keep people on as a subscriber, albeit at a reduced rate for a couple of months, then it saves you having to re-sign them up when, when good times return. Uh, and those businesses, I think, um, you know, made the right decision and that's starting to show with, with you, know, you know, after we're starting to come out when they switch those fees back on, um, resulting in very little, you know, loss or attrition of, subscri- of subscribers. So, so what was the technology that was most in demand what were people turning off and what were people scrabbling to turn on? Oh, look, I think it's fair to say, um, I, know, I know this sounds ridiculous, but, you know, clearly the big winner out of this is Zoom. Um, <laughs> we you know, that's, that's not prop tech, it's just technology. And, and it's funny, actually, at the, at the start of this panic, I said to um, uh, one of the guys in the office, said, I wonder what's going to happen to Zoom shares. I might buy some. And we looked up the Zoom share price and it, it kind of one of the only stocks that had, had risen. It had only risen marginally and now it's sort of trading at, at triple what it was back then. So I, I didn't do anything about it. But, um, you know, funnily enough, you know, I, I would say if you, if you were to say to me what, what technology would be adopted by, by more people in the real estate industry than any other, it's Zoom. And it's not a prop tech, you know, thing. But that's the case all over the place. Um, I think, you know, specifically relating to prop tech, um, you know, certainly, you know, things around remote inspections, um, uh, you know, Inspect Real Estate, uh, you know, released very, very quickly a remote inspection tool, um, HappyCo, which is a company we're invested in, although they're more in the US market. Um, they have a, a software platform for inspections in the real estate industry with about 2.4 million properties on it. Uh, they released a similar product 
um, the, the, the online uh, auction space. Um, now, over the years, we've looked at multiple online auction, uh, you know, prop tech businesses. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a space that we took a view as one that was going to not be successful um, and, and to date we haven't had any of those businesses get, you know, significant uh, scale, although there's no question they did have an uptake over coronavirus. Now, the big question on everyone's lips is what's going to happen, you know, once, you know, everything goes back to normal. Um, it's sort of, you know, this whole idea of people not having to turn up to an auction almost flies in the face of exactly what a real estate agent wants and so therefore rolling out the technology in that space has been difficult. Uh, but it's certainly a space that um, has, has done well over, over coronavirus sort of a couple of months. But do you think, like, it, that was always the, the real estate belief that, oh, we can't do it virtually because no one would show up. As, COVID actually proved that wrong as a hypothesis, wasn't it? Like you actually can get more people to an auction if you make it easier for them to attend and sometimes physically attending is quite a tricky thing to do. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at at that particular space over the last, you know, sort of few years. Um, The issue is in order to adopt you know, wide scale in the industry, that issue is that you need to have agents on board. They're the ones that, that really are, are, the, are, are, the, are the group that control the auction environment. And if they don't want to, um, you know, if, if they have a view, and we took the view that they did, um, if they have a view that I would rather have people turn up to a property than bid online. Now, the reality is auctions have worked incredibly well for many, many, many years, decades, um, because if someone really wants to buy a house and their only option is to turn up, guess what? They turn up. Um, you know, this, this, I think the, one of the sometimes in, 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 in sort of technology circles, um, people come up with a problem that maybe isn't a genuine problem or, or maybe not a genuine problem at scale. You know, there are, there are unquestionably certain, you know, unusual circumstance. I mean, Dom's just had a baby. If he had a, you know, was really wanted to buy a house on the day that baby was born, it's going to be difficult for him to, uh, you know, him and his wife to turn up, um, you know, and that's why he's not on this call. Um, but, you know, how many people does it actually occur for? And that's just a, a view that we took. Uh, of course, when you're an investor as we are, a venture capital investor, you know, we're backing businesses that we think can get an enormous scale. And, and we just took the view that the online auction space was not one of those spaces. Now, as it turns out, it's done well in coronavirus. Um, is, is that going to continue? We don't know. Um, you know, and is the market big enough to sustain a very large business there? Once again, we don't know the answer to that. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting one. Do you think the adoption of it by, you know, it's now available through both realestate.com and Domain. They've both got their own sort of online auction platforms going. Do you think that's going to change how we behave in this space? Um, I, th- I, think, um, I think it's fair to say that the whole concept of remote um, engagement, be it, you know, work auctions, performances, whatever they happen to be, um, you know, entertainment, I, I think that is that is going to be, you know, the, the uptake of that is going to be significantly increased in the future. I think we're all going to sort of, you know, be 12, 18 months down the track, even if we do get a, a vaccine for COVID-19, and we're going to be heavier users of technologies that allow you to do things remotely. Um, so, so I think that's inevitable, 
if the question is, do I think um, online auctions are the future of auctions? My answer to that is no. Um, and even if it was, I would argue that I don't think the market is big enough to sustain a large technology business. So as an investor, that's something that, that yeah, any institutional venture capital investor looks at and says, how big a business can you grow in this sector? And in my view, even if we had 50% market share with one provider of online auctions across the whole of Australia, it's still not going to be you know, a $500 billion business. Um, it would struggle to be a, a $150 million business, which is one of the issues, um, you know, with, with Australia as a marketplace. Typically, you need technology that can scale multiple, um, you know, geographies because the Australian market is, is small and, and, you know, real estate auctions are, are something that are, are not common all over the world. So, so how did re- investors respond to covid um, did, was there a flight of cap? I mean, I was reading stuff when it first happened that, oh, you know, all the investors are going to pull out of, of all of these new innovators um, and out of the funds. What does the investment landscape look like at the moment? But for, for everyone except for auctions. <laughs> I know, we talked a lot about auctions. Uh, so, um, look, I think, um, you know, the investment land, there's, there's no question that investors have um, a greater choice of investment opportunity now than they did six months ago. Um, Having said that, um, you know, we've still got, you know, public markets, uh, equity markets, you know, the, the, the stock exchange, um, uh, you know, not just here in Australia but around the world trading at strangely high levels um, and professional institutional investors across the board can't understand why. And there's lots of sort of, you know, theories as to why that is the case. Um, so, but, but there's no question there's more opportunity now. And so what we've seen is... Um, a number of things. We've seen uh, valuations drop, particularly for um, growth businesses in the technology space um, and, and particularly for earlier stage growth businesses. Um, you know, we were looking at one opportunity, you know, that, that, you know, we said no to prior to coronavirus that came back to us at a valuation, you know, that was half the price. Uh, and they literally had that round filled prior to coronavirus and, and we chose not to participate and, and we chose not to participate during coronavirus at half the price. Um, you know, so so we're definitely seeing, you know, that is an, an element of supply and demand and, and, and investors being cautious. So we are seeing, you know, a reduction in price, um, you know, a, a reduction in capital. Um, but then by the same token, good opportunities are still raising capital. Uh, we took part in a, a follower investment for one of our portfolio companies, a company called Different. Um, they literally were raising capital at the absolute height of the panic, uh, and their round was oversubscribed. So, you know, I think it was a sort of seven and a half million dollar round um, in an Australian prop tech business that's relatively early stage. Why? Because it's good business. Um, you know, so you look at, you know, as is always the case, um, those that have got good investment opportunities will succeed. But I think. Um, it is definitely harder for uh, young growth tech organisations, uh, you know, including prop tech uh, in the prop tech space. It's definitely harder to raise capital now than it was sort of six months ago. So, what's your advice to those young growth companies at the moment? What do they need to be doing to be attractive to VCs? I think um, as as a as an early stage tech business, be it prop tech or otherwise. Um, your currency is growth. Um, and that's, you know, one of the key things to understand. And so really what you've got to do when you're looking at um, your, your process of raising capital to fund that growth over a period of time, uh, obviously you've got to not run out of money. 
Um, and this is one of the really interesting things we're going to see in the tech space. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of businesses that are, you know, that are raising money at these 12, 18-month intervals um, in, the, in the growth tech space. Now, the problem is in order to raise a subsequent round, you need to show growth over and above your previous round. And there are going to be a lot of businesses that are going to struggle to show that growth over sort of, you know, the first six to eight months of this year. So if they're going into a capital raise in sort of June, July this year, um, or in June now, say August, September this year, and they haven't got that growth, the question is what's going to happen to those? And I think those businesses uh, are, going to, are going to struggle to raise capital and we're going to see the death of a lot of early stage um, you know, tech businesses, be it prop tech or otherwise. So there's a few things, and this is one of the things that, that you know, we spend a lot of time on the phone to all our portfolio companies around, okay, um, we really need to cut costs. And this is not because you're losing customers, but if you are inhibited from growth, what we want to do is we want to um, stretch the runway of capital that you have to get well and truly out the other side of this, um, you know, this, this pandemic so that you can once again demonstrate growth prior to growing into your next round of capital raising. Um, so my first step, you know, my first piece of sort of feedback or advice would be make sure you've stretched that runway out as, as long as you can. If you're not growing right now, you need to cut costs in order to stretch that runway out. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, you know, if anyone's, uh, most people in, in the tech space have read, you know, the, the book um, that the uh, Mark Andreessen wrote on called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And the reality is one of the hard things about, you know, running any business, particularly a, a cash-burning early-stage growth startup, is you've got to make tough decisions. Um, and so, you know, we saw some businesses make tough decisions but right decisions um, that will result in them being, uh, you know, in a good position 12, 18 months from now. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I think is very important. So to summarise, um, early-stage prop techs at the moment need to be growing faster than they were last year or, you know, in, over previous quarters, despite the fact that the pandemic might have slowed them down a little bit and they need to be... To clarify, so, so no, um, no, I'm not saying they need to be growing faster, but, you know, in order to raise capital, you, you, you need to show growth. And right. if you're going through a, you know, if, if, if you've got a product that isn't thriving during, you know, COVID, which frankly is probably most products and your your growth has stagnated, then you really need to stretch your runway out so that once you get back out the other side, you can once again demonstrate that you've got growth prior to going to your next round of capital raising. Got it. Okay. So do you think, Chris, we did see though that a lot of, you know, that a lot of prop techs sort of enjoyed this you know, extraordinary demand on their services while the while lockdown and, and um, isolation was in place. Do you think, auctions aside, do you think we're going to see some of that other adoption remain in the market or are we going to see a bungee, you know, a, a bungee stretch back? Oh, I think it's probably going to be a combination of the two. Um, that, that would be my view. Uh, like I said earlier, I think we're going to see uh, a maintenance of of, of um, this uptake of new technology. Um, I think. I think what we are also going to see is a lot of a lot of uh, customers of the prop tech industry. So the real estate agencies that use a lot of uh, uh, tech and, and and property developers and, and what have you understand that all of a sudden they can they can run their business uh, at a, at a lower cost level than they originally thought they could. That was one of the, the overwhelming things we've had in feedback, not just from our portfolio companies, but from you know businesses across the whole real estate space, is that. Um, you know, once they made some some cuts at the height of the panic, and and all of a sudden their revenue didn't necessarily drop, they were suddenly a whole lot more profitable and and wondering why they hadn't done that previously. 
Um, you know, so that's a, that's definitely a trend uh, that I think we'll we'll see. But I think there are definitely certain businesses that are going to to, to be successful out of this. Um, you know, and and you know, you talked about the, the rise in in usage of CRM systems. Um, you know, one of our portfolio companies, Active Pipe, who have a a, a marketing platform for the real estate industry, uh, record you know um, record user time uh, on, on their platform over this over this period of time as as well. So definitely an uptake there that that hasn't uh, as yet started to decline. Um, in terms of usage from from their customers, so I think there will definitely be businesses that that are, that are better off long term as a result of what's happened. The PropTech Association Australia is proudly supported by our foundation sponsors: Stone and Chalk, the Real Estate Institute of Western Australia, and Macquarie. If you're passionate about PropTech and would like your business to take a leading role in the PropTech conversation, join us by becoming a sponsor. Drop us a line at hello at proptechassociation.com.au. So where do you think we are in the curve of, of innovation at the moment? Do you think the where COVID has affected the industry? Are we going to see more innovators sort of in the next wave start to run out of cash and close down or disappear? Or, or do you think if, if we've got through it so far, you'll be okay? Oh, in terms of, are you talking in terms of actual prop tech businesses? Yes. Yeah. So in terms of prop tech businesses, I think we're going to see a retraction of the number of prop tech businesses that are, you know, that are around over the next uh, six to nine months. Um, and I, but I don't think that's limited to prop tech. I think that's going to be the whole startup ecosystem. Um, the reality is there's less capital around. Uh, it's harder to raise. Um, we're going to see a, a, a decline in spend from both business and consumers um, as, you know, we, I mean, one of the strange things about this, there's a lot of optimism, which is great, but, you know, we're heading, we're heading to sort of, you know, record levels of unemployment uh, as soon as we get out of the, the artificially sort of uh, heightened sense of everything's okay because of, you know, massive stimulus, JobKeeper stimulus, um, you know, POIG stimulus, uh, and also, you know, just from a consumer perspective, all those people that are on, you know, you know mortgage repayment holidays and things like that, that's all got to end and it's all got to be paid back. And, you know, I take the view that most institutional investors do, and that is we're going to see, you know, more pain and suffering down the track in terms of the economy, um, you know, and, and I think that's going to, you know, spread across to markets, um, you know, the equities markets. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a venture capital investor, we get our capital um, from a range of other investors, high net worth individuals, family offices, other institutions, and when they've got more choice on where to invest it, they're going to invest less with us, which means we in turn invest less in the prop tech space. And that's just, a, I think, a, a reality that, that most people probably don't realise just yet. And we haven't seen it, um, you know, really play out just yet. But I do think that is coming. So a bit more pain coming through. How, how many prop techs are there? How many Aussie prop techs are there in the market that you guys have counted? Well, um, that's, a, that's always a tough question. So we've looked at, to date, 542 prop tech businesses, um, you know, to, to invest in our portfolio. Now, I would argue we've probably looked at more. Have we looked at every single one? No, I, I think that would be um, presumptuous to assume we have, but I think we've looked at a, a lot of them. 
Um, there'd be a lot of smaller ones that we haven't looked at simply because they're sort of not on, on that radar from a, a size perspective. I think in Australia there's probably, uh, you know, circa a 1,000, um, but we're all so talking all the way down into sort of really micro sizes. I should point out as well we're very focused on the residential space um, and the biggest problem when someone says how many prop tech businesses are there, um, the question is, well, what is prop tech? Um, and there's lots of different definitions floating around. And I think it's fair to say that PropTech is definitely more than the residential space, which is predominantly where we look. Um, but it's, you know, certainly commercial, uh, you know, in the commercial real estate. But is it, is it you know, construction or is that something different? Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. Um, but there's, there's certainly a lot and it's a, growing, it's, a, it's, it's a space that has historically grown very well over the last few years. Yeah, so... So I guess to summarise what you've been telling us, um, around about a thousand prop techs, we're probably going to see that number come down over the next twelve months as, as you know, as as we as the virus sort of plays through and as its impact on the economy plays through. Um, the advice to uh, prop techs is to survive at all costs. Like you know, look after your customers, get rid of all your costs, try and make sure the money's going to last you through what's go, uh, what's going, what the next couple of months are going to hold. But where do you think the focus and emphasis should be on innovation at the moment? Well, that's um, that's a tough question. It's sort of you know how long's a piece of string. Uh, I think I think with it, with innovation, um, and, and this is not. You know, I don't think it's changed now to where it was anywhere else. Innovation needs to be, you know, you need to focus innovation on, on, on problems that are genuine problems in a market that is sizable. And that's if you're in prop tech or any sort of tech growth business, you know, tech startup business, you know, are you solving a genuine problem and is that problem big enough so that you can sell to a big enough customer base in, in order to create a large business? Because if you're not, uh, it's very hard to, to, to attract capital in, in order to fuel the growth of, of your business. And that's one of the things I would say one of the most common errors um, that, that startups make is that they've got a product, they've identified a problem, they've got a product, um, but it may not be a genuine product or it may, sorry, a problem or it may not be a, a problem for enough people in order to create a sizable business, um, you know, in particularly in the Australian market. Of course, that's the, one of the issues we have in Australia is that if the market in Australia is not big enough, you've then got to go overseas and there are, are definite risk points in, in, in scaling a business, you know, geographically, um, which is why it's a great idea to start internationally. Um, don't sort of necessarily, sometimes there's this assumption I'll build, I'll build market share in Australia and then I'll go overseas. If you can easily sell your product overseas, start doing it from day one because you'll learn a whole lot more. And a classic example of that is, you know, our, one of our portfolio companies, HappyCo, who started with an inspections, you know, you know, um, you know piece of software for the Australian real estate market and soon realised that every time they signed up a customer in Australia, they signed up two or 300 properties to their, to their, to their system. Every time they signed up a customer in the United States, they signed up, um, just under 5,000 at a time. So the average size of their customer uh, manages 5,000 properties uh, and that's well above, you know, I think the average size of a rent roll in Australia is, um, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere around the six, 700 mark uh, at the moment, which is significantly higher than it was a couple of years ago. Um, but you can see, a, you know, a business like that has 2.4 million properties being inspected on that platform in the US 
that's the equivalent size of the entire residential investment property market in Australia. Uh, and that's a, a really interesting point in case around if they hadn't have been selling to the US market at the same time they were Australia, they may have got some great market share in Australia, but what's the likelihood of them getting 100% market share? Pretty small. And they've got the equivalent of that in the US. And that's a, a really interesting sort of case study around think big um, and, and, and go where and fish where the fish are, um, you know, when it comes to building a, a technology business. Cool. Um, Dan or Eliza, have I, either of you got any comments on, on what Chris has said or want to add anything from what we've talked about so far? Um, I would just add to the point about the online auction space. I think it's something that may be a bit um, overblown just because of the period that that um, on-site auctions were banned. I mean, that was probably about a month. In that time, we saw auction volumes reduced to about 300, 400 a week. Yeah. And even from those properties that were selling under auction conditions, um, only about you know, 12% were selling on the auction date. And that's not to say that, you know, so so that's just to say that a very small percentage was actually selling online, whereas what we actually saw in the auction space was a much larger portion being sold prior to the auction event and being managed through one-on-one -on -one inspections and a pivot to um, private treaty. So, I think that issue of not having the on-site auction, first of all, it mostly only affects Sydney and Melbourne. Secondly, it probably wasn't taken um, uh, out of play long enough for the online auction space to um, become more widely adopted. And mm -hmm. so, uh, I guess we're thinking about, you know, what other kind of pivoting can you can you make in that virtual um, inspection or, or, you know, videography um, uh, to... Uh, yeah, pivot away from the online auction. So, Eliza, with the what, what Chris alluded to, which is that sort of the, it's the next six, nine, 12 months that are really going to determine what COVID's really been like, what are you seeing in the data around uh, to, to help us shape what that might be? In terms of the shape of the recovery kind of thing or, yeah. So, it, I always find that a funny question because, I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, a V-shaped recovery, it depends on whether you're looking at percentages or size of GDP or, or whatever. Um, I am a fan of, uh, I think, the kind of Nike tick where you get that kind of short, sharp downturn and then a gradual recovery. I think a V-shaped recovery is just... I think it's kind of impossible to imagine um, just because there are still headwinds in the sense that, you know, as Chris said, um, companies that have found that they can adopt more technology and pivot to a less labour-intensive um, operation means that that might limit the uptake of employment, you know, as, as the uh, economy uh, recovers. Um, and I think that there are just sorts of headwinds there where Australia's private sector was already pretty weak. A lot of our firms are small business. They don't have a lot of capital. And that's why we'd probably see the dropout of more business. So, in other words, I think our recovery won't necessarily pe see people who have lost their jobs, you know, welcomed back into their jobs with open arms in, in every case. Um, mm -hmm. Things like the JobKeeper have helped, but there are certainly headwind headwinds that will slow down the economic recovery. And Dan, how has it affected how Macquarie looks at, you know, funding and finance? I mean, you have a lot of prop techs come to you for funding, but also uh, the, the real estate industry. How has it affected how you're looking at real estate businesses? 
Yeah, I think um, some of the commentary Chris made about um, planning the cash flow out for the next six, nine, 12 months was was really key for us, really. So um, we recently launched for our clients a, a, an online cash flow sensitivity analysis they could do where they could look at their current cash balance and look at what the likely movement was and see how much liquidity they were likely to have for the next six, nine, 12 months. That lack of um, certainty around where the future of of, of the economy is heading. I mean, we've just never been in this situation before with such a dramatic stop in economic activity. And so none of us really know what the outlook is. None of us know how um, the, the impact on part-time workers will be impacted by the end of the JobKeeper allowances. And there's all these factors all rolling together over the next three to six months. Uh, so we're really looking at um, those companies that are, are being prudent and and yes, hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. How can how can you build a sustainable business that come 2021 will be in good shape to start taking advantage of the opportunities that are there? And we do think there'll be a lot of opportunities for real estate business. And one of the themes we mentioned was this consolidation of the market. And I think that's a theme that will get a lot of uh, momentum over the next six to nine months. It's um, But it's all about timing. Uh, and it's all about getting the right opportunity at the right time uh, with the right backing. So we're, we're definitely, um, we're, in, we're in a mindset of opportunity. We're looking at how we can support our clients through growth at this time. That's the, the lens. I think uh, three months ago, it probably wasn't as much about growth. It was more about how do we help our clients to um, to hunker down and, and sort of get through because no one knew what was going to happen. Uh, but I think at this stage, we're, we're definitely looking at growth and opportunity, but it's it's just got to be well-managed and, and prudent and careful. Um and I think that applies across all aspects of the capital structure, whether it's VC or, or debt finance. Cool. So, so let's open it up to some questions from um, from the audience. Um, uh, Marianne, I'm not. I, I've got a few here that I can ask off the question sheet. Um, so, uh, or, or just um, let us know if there's some other ones that you want us to answer. D- I'm not sure who wants to take this, but do you feel that the predicted economic downturn as a result of COVID will accelerate or decelerate the tech-led disruption of traditional real estate and of the traditional model? Because we've got headwinds coming, you know, that are sort of making people hunker down. We've got um, also the impetus to, to need to change and get uh, to get better at innovation. How do you think it's going to play out? Chris, do you want to take that? <laughs> I was thinking long and hard there. I can see. <laughs> I'm not sure I have a view on that. It's, it's actually a really good question. Is is it going to accelerate or decelerate uh, sort of you know tech led disruption in the property space? I, I I think once again, the answer to so many questions around you know innovation and 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 prop tech is the, the answer is it depends. Um, it depends on the types of of areas. Um, you know, I sort of, you know, you take, you take, you know, one area that uh, that I'm obviously very familiar with. Uh, many people won't know. I used to run a quite a large property management business in a, in a former life. Um, if you look at the property management industry, I think what Dan is definitely saying is the property management industry is unquestionably consolidating. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of uh, businesses buy other businesses. And there's an enormous amount of technology being developed for the property management industry. And there's also, uh, you know, tech, technology disruptors coming into the property management industry uh, as, as well. So I look at that and think, okay, yes, I think that is going to continue to be disrupted, although it's a very difficult industry to disrupt. 
but with a massive prize pool of, of revenue, sort of circa three-plus billion dollars in management fees paid around Australia, you know, to, to, to succeed with. So I think what we'll see is we'll see that, you know, technology disruptors take a part of that market. We'll see the incumbent industry um, adapt and change their business model and consolidate and become more profitable, and we're already seeing that. I mean, I, I, I've talked to two businesses this week in the property management space that are running property management businesses with, you know, uh, EBIT margins on their property management businesses of over sort of 35%. And that's that's actually very high. And they are good users of, they're both good users of technology that's been developed in that space. So they're, they're really driving efficiencies in their businesses. Um, so it's, it's, it's such a tough question to answer, but um, because really the answer is it depends on what space um, you're talking about because prop tech encompasses so many different things. So there's a really bad answer for you, Kylie. <laughs> Dan, Dan, do you want to have a go at that question? Yeah, I'd probably just add, add to that answer really that um, the biggest impact I'm seeing through this is, is people's mindset. So um, I think this, this experience has, has affected confidence and um, the way people feel about the world in a, in a way that I've not seen an event like this sort of happen or have that impact. And it's making people want to ensure they are taking a bit less risk and building more buffer and building more protection against the volatility. And I mentioned that the volatility had been present beforehand, but this really just showed people how vulnerable their businesses were to a, to a shock. And um, yeah, this was a, a few months of revenue impact uh, and, and that's not uncommon in the real estate space when you look at the seasonality of the market. And I think it highlighted to people that change needs to be made. Does it necessarily follow that that always means technological change? Um, not necessarily, but, but I think the flow of events will be that more people will make that commitment to become a high-performing business. More people will make that commitment to change their traditional model through to a more efficient model. And as a result of that, they will be looking for all of the um, possible solutions to improve the efficiency of their business, to lower the cost, to find adjacent revenue streams, and more than anything, to build an experience that the customer actually wants to use. I, I think this whole experience has just reminded people of their vulnerability and, um, and the need to make decisions. The, the big problem will be a lot of people don't quite know what the first step is in making that change journey, and I, I think... Um, as people's desire to change grows, as their um, dissatisfaction with, with their business as it stands grows, then I think we'll see a wave of change. Uh, and, and hopefully it will come through. I mean, I, I genuinely um, hope we start to see people really take that continuous improvement in their business management, um, not more seriously, because I think they take it seriously now, but, but just with more, um, more intensity and, and more urgency. And when we talk about how it's changed for, you know, customer demand. One of those customer sets is actually or stakeholders are staff too. And this ability to work from home has had a big impact on the industry as well. Um, who wants to take that? Like what what do we, do we think that real estate offices are going to get smaller? Are they going to disappear from the high street? Um, are property management teams going to be working from home? What's your thoughts on that? I'll answer that one, and I think the answer is yes, um, and not just in the in the real estate space, but everywhere. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, you know property investors who are investors in our fund, and one of the overwhelming sort of feedback things we're getting is that the demand for commercial property and and the and the return on commercial property um, is is really under a big question mark moving forwards. Um, and the reason behind that is if 
if, if you're running a business and you can't, you all of a sudden have to have 10 square metres of space per person when you used to be able to get away with six, and I'm just throwing random numbers out there, um, then, then what happens? Well, you need more space, but that doesn't automatically make you more profitable, which means you can't afford more rent. Um, so, so something's got to give somewhere, and I think what's going to give is, is the return on commercial property. Um, and, and, you know, one thing that is, is, you know, well and truly shown, although working from home is not for, for a lot of people, uh, it certainly is for some people. And, you know, I take our business. I mean, we operated perfectly well in an environment where we're working from home. I'm back in the office now, but um, it really made no difference to us. Do we need office space? Absolutely not. There's no question about that in our business. Um, some businesses you do. I think in the real estate industry, we're going to see a, an increase of, of people working from home, particularly in property management. Um, so that's 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 my view on that. Yeah. So we're we're coming up for time, guys. Thank you so much for an amazing discussion, Eliza. I'm going to uh, get you to finish off, if that's okay. What do you think um, is going to happen to prices of uh, property prices in the second half of 2020? And what's the spring market going to be like? Do you reckon? Yeah, um, so I short answer, I don't have a crystal ball, I can't really say. My guess is that because the cash rate is at its effective lower bound, we're as low as we can go with uh, monetary stimulus, which um, a reduction in the cash rate typically sees an increase in property prices, hasn't quite had that effect this time, but has kept price declines, I think, less severe. So what I think is probably going to happen is we'll continue to see a decline in prices throughout 2020. And I would expect values to start um, picking up again once employment figures come uh, start to rebound. Um, and the reason for that, I think personally, is because we because we can't rely on the cash rate reductions any further and the government governor of the RBA has made it pretty clear that we're not um, going any lower with that target. It's going to come back to um, income for purchasing capacity. So I would expect to see um, perhaps after Q1 of 2020, maybe starting to see a bit of a recovery in property prices as we see more jobs being taken up and um, income recovery. So Q1 2020, sorry, which Q1? Uh, 2021. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would expect to start seeing a bit of an uplift. I was going to say, don't hold me to that, but I know we're being recorded. We've got journalists <laughs> on the line, so <laughs> there it is. Um, but, you know, I, I, I started in this job thinking that I had a pretty good handle on where the economy and the property market was going. And then a global pandemic-induced downturn, you know, created one of the biggest economic um, downturns we've seen in about 100 years. So, who knows? <laughs> well, we've, all, we've all had our reality, um, our, 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 our belief in what is reality completely questioned over the last couple of months. So hunker down, folks. I think we're, there's still a bit more pain out there, but if we all know what to expect, I guess um, forewarned is forearmed. Um, look, we could certainly discuss this all day, but I'm afraid we are going to have to wrap it up there. I wanted to thank our panellists, Eliza Owen from CoreLogic, Chris Rolls from PyLab and Dan Evans. Thank you so much for stepping in from Macquarie Bank. I would also really like to thank the PropTech Association Committee, Simon Yates, Jennifer Harrison, um, Marianne Lampertang, AJ Chand and Kylie Dillon for all their help um, organising this event. We're going to be holding more events like this over the next 
few months. So please stay tuned for details. They'll be in your inbox uh, or follow us on LinkedIn or Facebook. And a very uh, big thank you to Stone and Chalk for getting behind this event and their support for Australian prop tech. So if you are a prop tech looking for a great workspace with other businesses kicking goals across fintech and prop tech, really encourage you to check out Stone and Chalk and their spaces in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide because you can't work from home forever. You need to get out of the house. So thank you everyone so much for your time. Thank you again to our panellists. This is Kylie Davis signing off. Mm -hmm.